Uh, we are now on our sermon portion of our worship. And so as we begin, let's start with a prayer. Lord, at this time, as the scriptures are opened and your word is read and preached, we ask God that your Holy Spirit would give us faith and understanding that we may be able to live out the life that you will for us as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be reading the first seven verses. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. And you can find that in the Pew Bible in front of you, underneath that chair, on page 947. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commended him, commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, I suppose I owe uh, some of you <clears throat> an apology, many of you actually. Um, I, I handed out a lot of rain checks this week. <laughs> and so they're still good. Um, you can cash them anytime you'd like. On Tuesday night, my wife and I went to bed and um, I had this incredible pain in my lower right jaw. And I never had this kind of pain before. No, I thought, I, you know, I consider myself someone that can have a good threshold of pain. But this was, this was, pretty, this was pretty bad. And I was in the fetal position. And my wife was next to me, like, at 3 a.m., looking up, like, what's the closest emergency room she can go to. I said, don't worry about it. I'll call the dentist. It's probably just, like, I don't know, a cavity or something. But it was so painful. And so the next morning, I called the dentist. I had an emergency um, appointment, and then after I get to the dentist, we do our x-rays, and she did a whole panoramic scan, and she looks at my teeth, and she's like, it could be that you need a root canal, it could be that your wisdom tooth is coming out, but I'm not sure. I was like, okay, if you're not sure, 
It's like, but you have this huge infection that's hitting the big nerve that's going down your jaw. That's why you're in so much pain. So I got prescribed antibiotics and some painkillers. Come back home. And I have like, a, a, it's still swollen here, but I have a, like a swelling the size of a golf ball around my neck here. And then so I tell my wife, she's like, what happened? What did the dentist say? It's like, she says she's not sure. She's like, what kind of answer is that? It's like, I don't know. That's, that's the answer they gave. And so, uh, so I'll, I'll take the meds. Hopefully the swelling goes away. I go to sleep Wednesday night, and I feel like my airways are closing up. So it's, the swelling got worse. And so I'm in a lot of pain. I thought I couldn't breathe. So the next morning, I said, I'll call, the, I'll call the dentist again. Dentist, I called the dentist. She's like, don't wait, just go to the emergency room. So we went to the emergency room. And I'm there. A bunch of people come look at me. I get a CT scan or a CAT scan. And after about eight hours, they tell me, oh, what you actually have, your teeth look pretty healthy. What you actually have is a parotid duct obstruction which is like a kidney stone, but it's in your mouth. And so I have a stone in my mouth that developed and blocked my salivary glands. And so if I sound like a little lispy, a little more weird, it's because the swelling push, pushed out my lower jaw, and my S's are all slippery now. But um, hopefully it gets better. It's gotten much better. And I just wanted to say I really appreciate all your prayers and your understanding. Um, yeah, people, people have been texting me, Pastor Eugene, you never cancel anything, and yet you cancel something. I was like, yeah, I try not to cancel it, because canceling is for the weak, but uh, this time I had to. I was, I was weakened. But this brings me to the point of today's pr topic, pretty much, and that is um, our faith gets tested. You know, even when I was in the hospital, my faith was tested. I was like, you know what, if they don't see me soon, I might die in this hospital bed because it's so uncomfortable. Not because of this infection, but these hospital beds are so uncomfortable. So I had this IV in me, they were putting antibiotics, uh, they were putting painkillers, all through, but I was just standing up. I couldn't sit on the bed, it was so uncomfortable. And then my wife would just be like, see, it's very uncomfortable, because she was on the bed last year with uh, Elizabeth. But she's like, it's very uncomfortable. It's like, yeah, it's, it's terrible. But, um, you know, you get to think about things. You get to think about life and all these things, especially if you're just waiting for something and if you're in a lot of pain. But that's naturally for anybody, not just myself and, or this particular season. Our faith gets tested. And I believe our faith has been tested. Even as a church, our faith has been tested. I believe that the COVID response that we have had was a testing of our metal. It was a testing asking us, are you afraid of suffering and dying just as the same as someone without the hope of Jesus Christ? Is it at the same level, your fear of suffering and dying, is it at the same level as someone else who doesn't have the hope of Jesus Christ? And so I did experience a lot of things while I was waiting. I saw people screaming in pain in the hospital. I felt terrible for them. I had conversations with people next to me, joking around with them too, but they had much more traumatic wounds than I had. 
but people are like, oh, you must be online for the CT scan if it's really bad. I'm like, looking at you, you look really bad. I wouldn't mind if you cut me, but a lot of people did cut me. That's why I ended up waiting eight hours for a CT scan. But um, it's, it's the revelation of what you're made out of when you're tested, okay? Some people don't like tests these days, but testing naturally will happen. And your testing of faith will happen. And so I did mention this earlier in one of my sermons, but I want to remind you, in 1527, the bubonic plague or the Black Plague, or the Black Death, as it was also known as, hit Wittenberg. And that's where Martin Luther was. And now, if you don't know the statistics of Black Death, if you got it and contracted it, your chances of death ranged from 30 to 90%. It was very high. And so all these people were fleeing. Martin Luther and his then pregnant wife, Katerina, they decided to stay behind because there weren't enough people to help those that were sick. So in his mind, he needed to help those that were infected, that were dying. And then now we know the statistic. If you contracted the bubonic plague, but you actually got medical attention, your chances of death were lowered down to 10%, which is still very high. But from 30 to 90, down to 10. And so he would stay there. He had this conviction that if you are of stronger faith, you should not, first of all, you should, he didn't condemn anybody that left the city. And that he specifically said that. If you, if you are of the weaker faith and you're scared and you left the city, that's one thing. But if you are of the stronger faith, his conviction was that he needed to stay. And it was inherently wrong for him to leave when so many people were suffering. Obviously, he didn't die of the Black Plague. And he helped many in Wittenberg. These are examples that we see even now of how faith will dictate how you live out your life here, today and now, as we face certain obstacles and obstructions. And the author provided for us right before this chapter the contrast between a faith that endures or those that shrink back and are destroyed. If you remember the last verse of chapter 10, it's the faith that endures, or those that shrink back and are destroyed. So that's the issue that we all face. This is the issue. What is the faith that we must have in this life? This is a very important, maybe even the most important question that is facing us today. What is the faith that we must possess in this life? Verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, when we talk about faith, I also need to mention how I'm so thankful for all your prayers and your support. So many people have come up to me and given me, you know, uh, words of comfort and even offers, you know, what can we do and things like that. So I do really appreciate it. And people who I did cancel on showed me a lot of understanding too. 
Um, but what it comes down to then is in our actions, if our faith is guiding our actions, then what is faith? And so the very first sentence that this author starts to develop is what seems to be a definition of faith. Faith is. In the Greek, it's very interesting because the way he formulated the sentence is he puts is first. And is is the Greek word me. It's where we have many times heard ego, me, I am, or I is, or I be, right? Amy starts the sentence because this is an emphasis on what faith is. So you would technically kind of, kind of read it like this. Faith is. This is an emphasis. So the sentence starts with is and then pistis, which is faith. And so we have faith is, and then we have two clauses separated by the comma. This is not merely a definition of faith. You can find that on a Merriam-Webster dictionary. If you really want to know what faith is, just look it up in the dictionary. But what we will see here and what he's going to develop on is the character of faith. What constitutes faith? And there's the first clause. Assurance of things hoped for. Faith gives the Christian reason to live in the reality of the things to come. Things hoped for are things that God has promised. The person of faith knows that the events that will transpire will transpire, and they will transpire in God's timing. You know, after I got discharged from the emergency room, I called my wife to pick me up, and then in, while she was driving, she said, I will be there in eight minutes. And so I believe her. She said she'll be there in eight minutes. I believe she is a competent, capable person. If she says eight minutes, eight minutes. So I said, I will be here in this corner, and you can come here. And I made my way so I could get there by eight minutes. If you kind of came to me and you're like, oh, so who's going to pick you up? I say, my wife is going to come. It's like, how do you know? you know? Show me proof. That's kind of silly, isn't it? I believe her because I believe in the person that gave me this promise. I don't always go, show me proof, you know, when someone says, that would be kind of ridiculous. But what faith helps me to do is enjoy the reality of then, because now I have this faith, I have faith in my wife. What it helps me do is enjoy the reality of me being picked up and finally getting to go home. I don't dilly-dally inside the halls of the hospital. If I had faith and understanding what my wife says, she's going to come and pick me up in eight minutes, then I start making my way out to the place that we are supposed to meet where she'll come pick me up. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's to know the blessings and promises of God that are firmly secured by God and that becomes substantive. It becomes real in your life. And your actions start to portray these truths that have been given to you. Second clause. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. These are placed side by side. 
it seems at first to say something similar, something similar as the first clause, but it adds this dimension. There is an objective reality that cannot be perceived through the senses. If someone had walked up next to me and said, well, how do you know your wife's coming to pick you up? Did you see her? Do you see her? Is she on her way in your mind? Are you, and then they would, they would try to make me out as a crazy person. Those are things that we would think is foolish now, but here it is. This is an obvious, obvious thing. There is an objective reality that cannot be perceived through the senses, and faith is having a conviction of those things. Faith is the exercising of this substantive reality of events that have not yet been disclosed, meaning they're still hoped for, and that have not yet been seen. We can't see it with our senses. So, if we understand these two clauses, then we can gather that those of faith are future-oriented. When we look at anything in this life, whether it's the economy, the household, the husband and wife, politics, all the things that we've been covering on Wednesdays, people of faith are forward-looking. This is why historically it was people of faith, like Martin Luther, who would venture courageously into an unseen and by every metric of the world, a very dangerous future. That means faith is ultimately eschatological in nature. It is future-oriented. Why? Because faith comes from God. Faith comes from God. Faith springs forth from an encounter, a personal encounter with the living God. And the subsequent orientation that we have now is toward God. And our movement is to the future with God has set for his people. This is why faith is the assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. But there's more. There's so much more to faith than this. And this, is, this is just the beginning. And this is very exciting. Verse 2. For by it the people of old received their commendation. It meaning faith, right? For by it means faith. People in the past received a reward from God himself by faith. And I think this sentence is here just as a teaser of what's to come. Because you might be thinking, well, I've read the Old Testament. I grew up in the church. Didn't people of old meaning people of the Old Testament received their reward because they did good deeds? And didn't people conversely get punished when they didn't do those good deeds or did bad deeds? What does faith have anything to do with any of this? And so he makes this opening clause, and he opens this statement, and then this statement is going to open up so that he can put all these other clauses in the following verses that we'll see going forward from here in this sermon and the rest of the sermons that will cover chapter 11. Verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. 
I love this verse. Now, before he goes into the faith of the people of the old, it looks like he takes a pit stop, doesn't it? But if you look carefully, it's not a pit stop. This is another characteristic of faith that is being developed. Faith is understanding Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, prominent atheists now, today, are calling for people to stop talking about the Big Bang. Abandon these theories like the Big Bang, because all these theories like Big Bang lead to people, lead people to faith. Oh, Big Bang. Who did, who did the bang? That kind of thing. And so now people are saying, oh, abandon these things. And so now there's all this talk about aliens. We have congressional hearings on aliens. I saw this one person give testimonies talking about holographic projections, meaning interdimensional realities. And I was listening to this guy, and I was, I was like, oh, no. He doesn't know what he's talking about, and he's, he's in a congressional hearing. Next thing you'll know, we'll, we'll talk about like quantum mechanics and string theory to explain aliens. That helps nobody, by the way. And interdimensional realities is, well, holographic projections is where you have a higher dimension reality projecting like a shadow into a lower dimension. And so that's how we see aliens. And like, what? What does that have to do with anything, bro? How's that helping our economy? Uh, nothing. Okay. So moving on. But then if you look at all these theories that are coming out, all the creation stories, all the beginning stories presupposes something. And unless you are a through and through atheist, well, then if you are, then I don't know why you're so, so, so upset because it's all meaningless anyway. But you see that it presupposes something. Life has purpose, which is so fascinating. Whether you know it or not, life's purpose is to live. What gave life that purpose? Who gave life that purpose? What brought something into existence? And so we even think about it in that philosophical level, which is a very, very entry-level philosophy, for the material to have come into existence, that means for us to have material now, whatever you see in the senses in front of you, there must have been first the immaterial. This is why people want to abandon the Big Bang. For the material to have come into existence, there must have been the immaterial. So something that takes up space to come into being, there first must have been the laws of physics, the laws of logic, the laws of mathematics. And all these are the immaterial that need to exist before the material. And you know who says that? Before scientists and philosophers figured it out, figured it out today? The Bible says that. In Proverbs 8, it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth when there were no depths I was brought forth when there were no springs abounding with water before the mountains had been shaped before the hills I was brought forth before he had made the earth 
with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made the firm the sky, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Before any material, the Bible says there was something immaterial. And who's talking here in Proverbs 8? It's wisdom. It's wisdom. Wisdom was before anything in this world was ever given. Bible, the Bible is already giving us this truth. So now if you start to put these things together in verse 3, what does any of this have to do with faith? Well, it's by faith that we are able to see that the universe was then created in response to the Word of God. You weren't there to see it, but you know it to be true. How? Because you have the Word of God. And this is the grounds of all faith, that there is a God who is unseen that created all things that are seen. There is an invisible divine reality a reality that we acknowledge through the things that are seen and that process is what we call faith the faith or faith and the word of god then go intrinsically together because to understand the written word of god you need faith faith then is to understand this is why the people in isaiah 6 were perishing Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. To understand, you need faith. And faith is all the things that were mentioned here before. Please don't succumb to the reductive phrasing of today's society when people say, that to have faith, you just need to believe. Because what does that even mean? It's as if we wanted to reduce faith to mean stupid. I mean, stupid people can have faith, but having faith doesn't mean you should become stupid. Faith, then, in its richness, are all the things that we've mentioned and more, as we'll see. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. By commending him, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. There are actually lots of commentary. Now, to further explain and give the character of faith, he's going to introduce uh, three characters from the Old Testament, people that you might not have thought uh, like, you know, face value. But when we mention Cain and Abel, there are lots of commentary all throughout the thousands of years on why Cain's offering was accepted, wasn't accepted, while Abel's was. 
There's a lot of commentary, there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of opinion. People would say, well, Cain just didn't do it the right way. Or Cain, they would, they would also say things like, well, Cain offered up his last portions. All this fruit and vegetables grew, and then he ate what he wanted to, and then he took the last portions and gave it to God. And there are, there are actually uh, rabbinical traditions and leaders who actually write about this as well. He gave up his leftovers, while Abel gave up his best portions. He gave up his last portion, Cain gave up his last portions while Abel offered up his first. Now, are any of these uh, commentaries plausible? I think yes, they are plausible. But here, the author gives one definitive reason why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was not. One. What is the reason why Cain's was not accepted and Abel's was? Faith. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, it gives us a little hint into why he's saying faith. The Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? I want you to think about that. The Lord saw that Cain was very, very disappointed, angry, upset that he accepted Abel's offering and not his, Cain's. And so God goes to Cain and says, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Think about what the Lord is addressing here. Because if it was just simply acts, God could have just said, Well, then all you have to do is switcheroo. Don't give me the last one. Give me the first one. Or I don't like fruit and veggies. I want meat. Give me meat. God didn't say those things. What did God say? God was addressing the heart. And the writer correlates that now to a faith issue. How did Abel get God's commendation? Was it simply the act itself? No, it was through faith. It was a heart issue. Translate that to today. If you are giving offering to the church... First of all, if you don't give anything, anything, then you're not even where Cain and Abel are. But if you're giving offering to the church, what's the key issue there? The key issue is it's a heart matter. It's a faith matter. Those that don't give or give without the right heart are just as what? If you look at what this is saying, they are just as guilty as Cain because you are not giving out of faith. Maybe you are a good giver, and I should be the one, you're like, Pastor, you should be the one thanking me. Because of you, you can pay your bill, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that's not what pleases God. Because then you're just trying to give to check off a box. And if you give to check off a box, then how is your attitude going to be like, just like Cain's? I deserve this. How dare you not accept my gift? How dare you not be thankful to God for what I give? I deserve this. I deserve that. That's why Cain was upset. But why was God pleased with Abel's offering? Because Abel had faith. He had the assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. 
And these conditions are set forth in verse 6 because Abel and Enoch are paired here, okay? So verse 6 is qualifying not just verse 5, but verse 4 as well. And I'll get to verse 6 later too, but here it says, verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is what made Abel's sacrifice pleasing to God. The author is saying, pay attention. Are you listening? This is the character of faith you are to have. Because you think faith is just about believing? In James 2, it says, even the demons believe and shudder. Now, going back to verse 4, and this is what still speaks to us today. It's not Abel's blood that speaks to us today, but it's Abel's faith that continues to speak to us is what it's saying. Because now his faith is going, that character that he is displaying is going to be written about him. His faith is going to be written about him. And how he exercised that faith is going to be what we see in the Old Testament as the sacrifice exemplar. This is the example, the ultimate example of sacrifice that we see in the Old Testament that will go forth from then on. All these sacrifices that you see from the Old Testament that you'll see now flows from this understanding that Abel gave the right one. And everything flows from that first clause. Faith is a heart issue. Where is your heart when you say you have faith? Verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now if you had come across Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, Enoch would have been a riddle wrapped in an enigma. Because in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, this is all it says. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And it just moves on to like Methuselah and goes on to the next person. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And because that's all it says, where do we get any of this? And this is why he continues on with verse 6, because it applies to Enoch as well as Abel. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If you do not have faith, you cannot please God. And by faith, what are you doing? You are earnestly seeking God. And in that seeking, God is promising reward. You will be rewarded as you seek God. And here is another real aspect of faith. Do you please God by earnestly seeking Him? Do you have this singular determination to devote yourself to the service of God? Or do you have other loyalties? You know, many of you are married, married for a long time. I love it. Some of you are looking to get married. I love it. Some of you are single, looking to also get married. I love it. I love it all. But in marriage, your pursuit of your spouse doesn't stop. 
to truly have a full and fulfilling marriage, what you're really doing, and if you sat down, I don't know if you sat down and thought about it, especially those that have been married a very long time, you are devoting yourself more and more to your partner. You are seeking more and more of your partner. When that stops, then the marriage is in disarray, is it not? When you stop seeking your partner, when you stop devoting yourself to him or her, then you have a pursuit that stops and the marriage that is now on the ropes. And this is why faith is characterized as pursuing God, seeking God. This is something that pleases God because we are called to be in, in an intimate relationship with God. In fact, how many times have we heard here that this church is the bride of Christ? We are going to get married to God and this analogy is given to us because we are to express this truth by faith. We are to draw near to God, pursue God, so that we have a full and fulfilling marriage with God. You are always devoting yourself to God. And how is it possible to have a good and fulfilling marriage if you're not devoted to your partner? If you think, I mean, I, I do love her, but... I love all these other women. All these women are awesome too. Could you have a good marriage? The answer is no. I don't care how many New York Times articles you read on polyamory. It's not true. It doesn't work that way. And so faith shows us that we must have a singular determination to devote ourselves to the service of God. Verse 7. By faith, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now by faith, Noah knew of the things that God had told him of the upcoming events. And it says here that in reverent fear he obeyed. So how do you obey God's word in reverent fear? Not nonchalantly or with some sort of entitlement, with reverent fear. Reverent fear keeps you from trying to put yourself in the center of everything. And through reverent fear, Noah was able to pay close attention to the details God instructed him when he said, build the ark in this way. Now, for us, we can have occasional doubts. You can have occasional doubts. And you will be scorned by society as a person of faith. But that's not the point. The point is that reverent fear of God will make sure that you are not putting yourself in the center, but you are putting God's word in the center. And how does that happen? It happens through faith. And it was Noah's faith that rebuked the world and how it's contrary to the character of what God wants, the character of faith and what God requires. So what does that show us? That the person of faith, by living out and obeying God's word in reverent fear, 
delivers through their faith also a sharp rebuke to a godless generation. So many of us are concerned. I believe here seated, many of us are people that consider themselves politically conservative or whatever you want to call yourselves. But how did Noah rebuke the world? By living out faith. By following and obeying God's word with reverent fear. That's how the world and the godless generation was delivered a sharp rebuke. Not by anything else. And here, the second part of the final sentence is why Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. In Habakkuk 2.4, it says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him, but the righteous shall live by faith. See this contrast here? There is a contrast here by the righteous who lives by faith and the reverent fear that is shown in Noah and a soul being puffed up. This is exactly what I said. Either you put yourself or you try to put yourself in the center. You are the center of everything. Make sure you're not offended. Make sure you don't get dismantled. Make sure you're always on top. No better. No one can impress you and that kind of thing. And you're always in the center. And that is not right with God. Or have faith. That's the juxtaposition. That's the contrast. And by having faith, we, just like Noah, become heirs of this righteousness. So our lives should be lived in accordance with the full measure of faith laid out before us in this passage. Again, this is just the beginning. Chapter 11 goes on. It's a very full measure of faith that is going to be shown to us. But faith, in this beginning portion, the author shows us that faith leads us to a life that pleases God by offering up our lives with the right heart that seeks after him more than anything else and obeys him in reverent fear. And again, the test will come. The test will come. And the test will show you whether you have faith, faith or falseness. Faith or falseness. And my hope is that everyone passes this test. My hope is that this church passes because what the Bible is showing us now is that we understand and know the true character of faith that God desires. And He deserves worship. He deserves glory. He deserves all honor and praise. And I want to also live out my life in accordance with the faith that He has called us to live in accordance with what the Word shows us. And this is my prayer for all of you as well. So let us live out the character of faith that God has called us to live out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Word that you give us. And Lord, we thank you for showing us in your Word the depth and the beauty of the faith that we ought to have as we follow you, follow after you, believing you, trusting you, obeying you with all of our hearts. And so, Lord, please be with us now as we live out this life according to the faith that you have called us to live. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on the word that was given to us 
as God has called you to live out a life of faith, how is that going to be expressed and exercised today, right now, tomorrow in your school or workplaces, in your homes? That's what pleases God when you live out the faith that He has called you to live. So let the Holy Spirit instruct you as you have been given the word. Let's pray.